The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we look at the modern inventive ways we try to use math and algorithms to make better decisions, and what happens when those solutions cause much larger problems than they solve. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Kathy O'Neill. She's a mathematician, a Bloomberg View columnist, and has been an independent data science consultant since 2012, and is the founder of Orca, an algorithmic auditing company. She's the author of two books, including Doing Data Science, Straight Talk from the Frontline, and most recently, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. Kathy, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks. Glad to be here. So you have quite an interesting career pathway that has led you to writing and caring about the topics in this book. So so can you talk a little about your past career moves, your experience in those sectors, and how they helped lead you to this topic? Well, let's see. I'm a mathematician by training, and I love math. And math uh, has and hasn't been super useful to me um, in the sense that I certainly don't do algebraic number theory anymore. And I don't think about those exact questions at all, but I feel like I can, I can ascribe um, quite a few sort of characteristics of the way I think um, to my mathematical training. So for example, when you're a mathematician, it makes sense for you to admit you're wrong um, because it saves you a lot of time. So you don't nurse grudges against people who correct you. Um, it also makes sense to think a lot about the assumptions you're making, because if you don't really clarify them to yourself, you, again, you can waste a lot of time. Um, and just those two facts alone that I, I like to examine my assumptions and I like to admit I'm wrong um, has kind of in my, from my perspective, kind of like informed my path. Um, so like, I, I decided to go into finance um, in 2006. I actually entered in 2007. But, you know, and if you think about what time of what time that was, it was right when the financial crisis started. So you go into finance and you're, if you're someone who like examines your assumptions, then pretty soon you leave. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I went in there with like the most naive concept imaginable of, you know, the idea was that I could use math to make the markets work better. But I soon realized that the opposite was true. Like your people were using their mathematical ability and a kind of voodoo mathematics as well to, to make markets work not as well. Or depending on who, who was working for, you could say they were working well for the people on the inside, but not for other people. So that's, that's why I left. Okay, so in this book, you coin a term, weapons of math destruction. Can you explain what that term means? Because we're going to be talking about that a lot. Yeah, sure. It's a, you know, it's, it's my attempt to focus our attention on stuff that I think is really bad. Um, when I say stuff, I, 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 the object of interest for me um, are algorithms, um, because I think algorithms are, are, are black boxes that can hide a lot of, a, a lot of voodoo, a lot of bad stuff. So for the purposes of my book and this discussion, a weapon of mass destruction is an algorithm that has three, three characteristics, um, three properties 
The first is that it's important. So I really don't care about most algorithms. Like I don't care about like a given data scientist's algorithm for, you know, checking their email efficiently. Um, or for that matter, I don't care about a typical um, algorithm that trades stocks in the stock market. It only it only matters to me when it gets to a, a point of like affecting a lot of people in, a, in important ways. Um, and the second characteristic is that it's secret. And the third is, and like, by the way, most algorithms are secret. So that's not a very strong condition. Very few algorithms are not secret, in fact. And we can talk about why. Um, but the third characteristic uh, is that it's actually doing harm, that it's destructive in some way. So that either means it's, it's destructive on an individual level. Um, so it, you know, as I said, it affects people's lives. So it's destructive if it's unfairly punishing people in their life. And then an observation I made um, when I found enough examples of weapons of mass destruction was that typically when you had things that were important and secret and destructive on an individual level, they were also destructive on a larger level, on a societal level, that they were actually undermining their original goals and creating sort of negative, uh, pernicious feedback loops. One more thing I want to maybe define really quickly, because I think it's also going to come up quite a bit, is the word model. Because often when we're talking about using an algorithm, we're talking about um, using an algorithm to model something in the world or to better understand how something works or to predict how something uh, is happening or how something will work. So is that a, a good way of like describing a model? How would we describe a model? I like to be vague about this because it's, it's going to be difficult for for me to say exactly what a model is, but I do I do want to characterize it by saying it's something that humans use to predict or to decide on a way of doing something that they do repeatedly. Um, so they have kind of inputs like, oh, you know, here's the situation, and what am I going to do? And uh, so there's like there's a concept of the information you have at hand, and there's a concept of what the decision or the prediction of what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, it can be as abstract as the example I give in my book, which is I use modeling in my head to, to cook my children dinner, uh, cook my family dinner on a given night. And, the, you know, the data I have at my fingertips are the ingredients in my kitchen and the amount of time I have and the amount of ambition I have. And then I, def and then I, you know, define a, mod a, a meal to be successful um, if my kids ate vegetables. So there's, when there's a model, there's data coming in and there's an output and, the, and there's also some kind of measurement of whether the output was successful or not. Um, but it doesn't, I, I, so you can see from that example that it doesn't have to be formalized. It doesn't have to be written down in computer code, but it could be. What's interesting too is uh, in the book, I remember particularly with your example of cooking a meal for your children, you also talk about how biases impact uh, our models, both just the models we use in our head, but also models on a, on a larger scale that could be being manipulated by an algorithm. So, you know, I think the example in the book was something along the lines of, um, you don't include pop tarts for dinner every night, which is, which is a bias, even though your children might prefer that, uh, you, you decide that that's not appropriate for dinner every night. Right. I mean, so exactly that, that's exactly the point of that example. Um, there's, well, there's actually, there's one point, which is no model is objective. There's no inherently morally neutral or inherently fair or inherently correct model. Um, the first reason is that, as I said, there's some definition of success. And what looks like success to me might not look like success to you. It really depends on the perspective. And the, the, the sort of critical thing to remember is that the person in charge of building the model gets to decide what success looks like. And it really matters. In the case of my meals, I decide that my kids eating vegetable is a success. But my son, who's eight, 
and loves Nutella would have made a different choice. He would have said, it's a success to me if I got to eat Nutella during this meal. And given that we optimize to success over time, I have a very different, um, I have a different path, a different like sequence of meals because we're optimizing to my definition of success and not my son's. That's one way in which it's completely obvious that there's no inherently objective way to build the model because you have to sort of project your value onto the model. The other point, the other sort of slightly um, more subtle point which you made is that you also curate your data. You decide what relevant data to put to, to use as input. And of course, any any algorithm will only uh, will only see the data it's given. There's no way that it can search for other data that was relevant but that you didn't provide it. So you can do an awful lot uh, of manipulation and agenda projection onto an algorithm uh, just by dint of feeding it certain kinds of data and not others. One, one of the themes that definitely comes up repeatedly in the book as well is how a model only works when something is somehow measurable. And we're more likely to run into weapons of math destruction problems a lot as we try to use models or algorithms with things that are kind of inherently difficult to measure. I mean, sometimes the things we find to measure are more proxies for the thing we actually want. And, and this can lead to a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, that's actually probably one of the biggest problems. Um, we have, well, it's, it's the problem that isn't the problem of having different perspectives on what success looks like. Um, the, one of the biggest problems is we don't have what we're actually looking for. I think the best example of that is with the teacher value added model or with literally any education model, any, any type of education model. Um, where you're looking for quality, what, like, you're trying to, you're trying to differentiate between a quality teacher and a low, like, high quality versus low quality teacher, or maybe a low quality versus high quality school. You have to decide what, first of all, what it looks like to be successful in an educational environment. And second of all, how are you going to measure that? And those are actually kind of two different questions, right? Um, you would like, like, say you would like to define success in an educational environment as, um, learning a lot, and that might be a perfectly good first try, but you're, you're, the only proxy you really have access to are test scores, and they're not particularly good at, as proxies of learning a lot um, uh, in a sort of random example. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. It depends on whether you're teaching the, the exact subject that the test is testing the kids on, and it, all sorts of things like that ensue. But yes, you've nailed it on the head. Like Even if you have a sort of widely shared definition of success, if you don't have a very good proxy for that, you're not going to go very far. So let's actually uh, look a little bit more at the school and in particular evaluating teacher performance, because this is an example you definitely go into in the book. And it's one that I think is particularly relevant for a lot of people, because a lot of people have kids, a lot, you know, people's kids go to school. So I think it is a topic and everybody wants their kids to be taught by the best teacher that they can that they can get teaching their kids. So how are models and algorithms currently being used to evaluate teachers' performance? Well, it depends, of course, on the school district. Um, and I'll be speaking only about the United States. Um, but we've, I'm actually going to explain this to you by telling you what happened in the past, uh, because it, it, I think it makes more sense to think of it as a second generation of teacher assessments, which it is. The first generation of teacher assessment, actually, I'm going to go for, further back because Really, the context is why are we like why are we assessing teachers in the first place? And I, the answer in in very a very short version of the answer is that 
we have, for the last couple decades, been trying to address what we call the achievement gap in education. And that is basically um, the disparity in test scores between rich kids and poor kids. And just to be clear, um, and this is not as well known as it should be, like both rich kids and poor kids have gotten better at standardized tests in the past 20 years. But rich kids have gotten better faster than poor kids. So so you have this widening achievement gap, as it's called. Um, and I should also mention, because it's important to know, that the disparity, the correlation between wealth and standardized test scores is well known. And it's historic. It's been true for as long as people have been measuring it. And it's also been true internationally for every other country. Um, so it's not something that we can really expect to get rid of entirely. But the idea has been to address it by uh, to try to make it smaller rather than bigger and to find the worst teachers and get rid of them and, and to hope that that will you know, improve the this uh, achievement gap. The idea is you got a lot of bad teachers that are um, especially if they're concentrated in kids and poor kids schools. And we get rid of those bad teachers, replace them with good teachers, and we'll have a better education for poor kids. And it's not a terrible idea. I know there are bad teachers. Uh, everybody knows there are bad teachers. But the, I think the uh, the sort of way that we've been trying to, to discover where they are, um, who they are, has been really problematic. So the first generation of teacher assessments was it was really simple and it was very stupid. It was basically, you know, look for teachers, a majority of whose students did not pass a certain proficiency score in their standardized tests. So in other words, look for teachers who had lots of kids doing badly on their test. And now if you think about what I just said about this, you know, strong correlation between um, wealth and test scores, you'll realize that that just basically targets teachers of poor kids, um, which isn't fair because lots of teachers of poor kids are actually doing their best, but they they are starting with kids that really don't do aren't at grade level in reading, say, and it's impossible for them to get all of those kids up to reading level to, to grade level of reading in one year. Um, so it was really not a fair way of evaluating teachers, and it was pretty clear quickly that that's that was the case. So they tried to basically what they tried to do was up with a new, more fair way of assessing whether a teacher was good or not. And what they came up with made sense in a theoretical way, but statistically speaking, was actually very bad. Um, and what they and to, to tell you a little bit more about it, it's called the value-added model. And the idea behind it was um, to understand the extent to which a teacher um, improved their students' test scores beyond expectation. Uh, I'll mention that there's an underlying uh, expected score model um, to this value-added model. Um, it's, so the value-added model is actually a second-degree model. So the primary model is for a given classroom of kids. So say I'm a fourth-grade teacher. I have a bunch of kids in my fourth-grade class. Each of those kids has an, a, a sort of expected score at the end of fourth grade. And that expected score is based in part on their end of third grade score, in large part on that, right? How well did they do at the end of third grade? But also on other kinds of attributes, like how many kids are in this class and which school district are we in and how many kids in this class have, um, have free school lunch, which is a proxy for poverty. 
and so on. So you have all a sort of a, a bunch of ingredients going into that model, the expected score model. And so every kid in my class, if I'm teaching fourth grade, has an expected score. And then also every kid in my class, presumably, has an actual score at the end of fourth grade where they actually take the fourth grade test and they actually get a score. And the idea of the value-added model is that I, the teacher, I'm on the hook for the difference between the actual score and the expected score. So if they do better than expected, I get credit for that. If they do worse than expected, then I get dinged for that. And I, my overall score is supposedly more or less some kind of cumulative average of those bumps, those up, bumps up and bumps down. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically, we're trying to figure out we're, we're trying to figure out how much more has this person learned in a year compared to how much we expect them to learn in a year. Is that kind of a, a good right. way of summarizing it? And you could think you could think that statistically speaking, what they were trying to do is say. Um, the expected score was like, if you had an absolutely average teacher, this is what you'd get at the end of fourth grade. And then compare that to what you actually got with this specific teacher. And so the idea was, oh, well, this is the, the difference between those two things is the difference that this teacher made over and above the absolutely average teacher. That is theoretically what it's trying to measure. Um, so now I'm going to start talking about what doesn't work in this um, scenario. And I think the the most important thing is that we just we just don't have enough data and we have too much uncertainty. So on the one hand, we only have 20, 25 kids in a class. It's a small sample size. And on the other hand, we have two different sources of uncertainty. First, the expected score for a given kid. It's really actually very difficult to guess at the kid's score in a year. All sorts of things can happen to a kid in a year that was that weren't taken into account by that expected score model. And then on top of that, we have the actual score. And we all know that an actual score uh, could change depending on whether the kid ate breakfast the morning of the test or whether the, it was hot outside and there was, was or was not air conditioning in the room or even whether it happens in the morning or the afternoon. Whether they happen to be sick that day. Yep, all sorts of things. So we have two numbers that have uncertainty attached to them and then we have their difference. And if you think about it, the difference between actual and expected is the error term, also called the noise term, in that original model, that primary model, the expected score model. And the teachers are on the hook for error terms, for noise terms. So as you can imagine, when you when you take the average noise term, it's noisy. And that is what we've seen. We've, we've just seen very inconsistent um, actual value-added model scores for teachers. So I talked to a teacher who got a six out of 100 for his value-added model score on, on one year. And then the next year, without changing his methodology, he got a 96 out of 100. <laughs> and he was left thinking the first year, oh my God, I'm a terrible teacher, even though, wait a second, I've been teaching for 20 years and I have all sorts of awards. Um, and at the end of second year thinking, this makes no sense. Yeah, and so so in this case, the noise involved is greater than any actual information this algorithm is producing for us. So, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that because that's a, like a really strong statement, mm. but I will say that we have enough evidence about these, these models to know that they should not be used as important markers for individual teachers. It's possible that they could be used on a district level to learn something, especially if the standardized testing question are nationwide tests. Um, but I don't think it ever makes sense to use them as individual markers of a good or bad teacher. Like you can't take one of those numbers and say, 
oh, it turns out you're a bad teacher. You just simply can't do that. But nevertheless, that's exactly what was done. And in fact, I found a woman who was fired from her Washington, D.C. public school job um, because of a teacher assessment, half of which was this value-added bottle score. That was in Washington, D.C. So now one of the other, uh, one of the things that you've said is an important part of a weapon of math destruction is that the algorithm involved is secretive. So is that true here too? Is the algorithm that figures out what this score is, is is that a secret thing or is there some transparency on what, what pieces of information goes in there? I guess we know test scores are taken into account. Yeah, there's test scores. There is actually a very hard to read white paper um, for the New York City one, which I got a hold of after a lot of work. Um, it completely doesn't explain anything. It just is very theoretical. So, um, but the answer is yes, absolutely. This is secret. And here's how I know that. Uh, the New York Post did something I thought was kind of low, uh, kind of low, which was that they filed a Freedom of Information Act request and got the names and the scores for all the teachers in New York City. And then they published those names and scores as an act of shaming the teachers with bad scores, um, you know, like as if they were scientific truth or something. That gave me the idea of filing a Freedom of Information Act request to get the source code. Cause I figured if that guy, you know, if the, if the post can get the scores, then I should be able to get the formula that makes up those scores. But I was denied that formula, that source code. And I actually ended up talking to someone at the, uh, the think tank that built this model. And they explained to me that by the contract that had been written, um, between their think tank and New York City, Nobody in New York City had access to this formula. So if you think about what that means, it, meant, it means that like literally nobody in the Department of Education, no one in the school system in New York could explain these scores that were being given to teachers that were making them feel bad about themselves or good about themselves without any statistical underpinning. So even in situations where teachers might have actually been losing their jobs, they couldn't really explain why. Yeah. So in the case of Washington, D.C., where people were actually fired, and I should mention they were also given bonuses if they got really good scores. Um, that woman I mentioned, Sarah, who got fired with 205 other teachers that same year, she tried to appeal her score because actually there was a little bit more to that story. She actually thinks that the teacher of some of her students in the previous year had cheated on those kids' tests and inflated their scores. Um, and the reason she thinks that is because they came in with very good scores, but they couldn't read or write. And she's a fourth grade teacher. Um, and there were actually an unusual number of erasures at that school district and that school system. Um, so she had perfectly good cause, like perfectly good reason to think, hey, wait a second. Um, those kids came in with inflated scores. And if you think about it, if they had inflated third grade scores, then they probably had like inflated fourth grade expected scores, which puts her at a disadvantage. So she had reason to think that she, that she had an artificially low uh, value added model score. But even so, she was told, sorry, you know, you were treated fairly. And by the way, you're fired. This is something that I find really fascinating about this discussion, because often one of the reasons for these algorithms and models being kept secret is that they don't want people gaming the system. They don't want people sort of cheating their way to higher scores or to better outcomes by knowing sort of the secret sauce. But here we have an example of potentially uh, someone having, they don't need to know what exactly how the algorithm works in order to understand how to game the system. So it's not, it's not really a good, a good reason to keep these things secret or, or to keep them sort of black boxed and closed. Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with you that 
in this case, you're, you're no, the, what you do know about your score is that it'll be better if your teacher, if your students' scores are higher. And what they are trying to incentivize teachers to do is get those kids good at those tests, right? So teach to the test or whatever. They, they sort of, they must, I, I'm assuming they must think that teaching to the test is exactly what they want because that's what they're directly um, creating incentives for. Um, but they're, if you think about it, they're offering bonuses and, and threatening firings. They're also actually um, going over the top with those incentives. And they should not be surprised, in my opinion, when people actually cheat. Um, but to your to your um, wider point, I, I think it's an important one. My so remember, I, I define weapons of mass destruction really carefully, and that first characteristic that it's important really matters. And here's why it matters. Um, it's true that if you have an unimportant algorithm, like an algorithm that sort of um, offers unimportant benefits to some people and doesn't offer them to other people, um, it can be hidden. It can be secret. Because, you know, because it's unimportant, basically. But if you're making really important decisions about people, especially when it has, when their job is on the line or some real, like, life opportunity is being opened or closed to them, then it is tantamount, in my opinion, to a secret law. Um, or to a law, I should say. And, and we have a constitutional right to know what our laws are. So in other words, I'm, I'm making the argument that something that's important enough should never be secret. And I think this is an example of that. Um, I'll say one other thing about the concept of gaming um, an algorithm. You can only game a bad algorithm. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but bear with me. If you had a FICO score, if you had it, let me say it this way. If you had a credit scoring company that didn't want to do an official FICO score model, they wanted to, they wanted to like do something cheaper because it was too expensive, for example, to buy all the data on whether some, a given person um, paid their bills on time, paid their electricity bills. Like They're like, I don't want to have to pay for that information from the electricity company. So I'm going to use a proxy and I'm, the proxy is going to be how many books do you have in your house? And I'm going to use that as a proxy. I'm going to replace um, the electricity payments history with the number of books in your house. Now, that's an example of why, uh, of a model where they wouldn't want you to know what the model is. They would want it to be secret because if you knew what the model were, was, you would say, oh, easy peasy lemon squeezy. I'll just put a lot of books in my house and I'll look good to this model. That's gaming. That's a classic scenario of gaming, right? But keep in mind that the FICO credit score doesn't do that. The FICO credit score actually lets you see the data. Um, that's called a, a, a credit report. You, you get to see that on a yearly basis for free, right? That's by law. Um, and it, it really does contain information that is relevant to your credit worthiness. So in other words, if you tried to game your credit score, it would, it would translate into paying your electricity bill on time, which is good, right? That's uh, People wouldn't even call that gaming. Um, so my larger point is like people's complaint that, you know, if I let them see the model, they'll game it. I will turn that around on those people and say, if it's gameable, truly gameable, then it's not good enough to be used for important decisions. This, um, this reminds me of an issue uh, that came up, uh, I think, in the last, last year, the year before, where Volkswagen was caught having created a, a device that detected when one of their cars was undergoing specifically an emissions test and then modified the performance to sort of game the test. And it seems like it's very kind of similar thing. I mean, I, I heard, I've, I've heard from people that emissions testing can be really problematic because the test that takes place, which is easy and fast to conduct, really has no bearing on the actual 
actual uh, emissions that take place while a car is on the road and while real people are driving a real car in their real lives. And so it's kind of like a faulty test. And my understanding from talking to some people is that in many cases, the uh, the car manufacturers are creating cars that have that pass an emissions test but actually do worse on the road when it when tested for emissions yeah so that that's i think i agree with you 100% i think what we have to acknowledge is that these tests aren't strong enough that the the test itself needs to be better it's too gameable so another section where you get into in the book that's relevant to education uh, that I think probably a lot of people haven't thought about, even if they've heard about the issue with um, evaluating teachers, is college rankings in the U.S. So can you talk a little bit about how, how college rankings started? Well, college rankings started as a sort of last-ditch effort to revive the magazine U.S. News and World Reports. <laughs> oh, those like, were the days. Yeah, it was, you know, they, they just wanted like a... You know, it's like, well, you can look at journalism today at like the desperate lengths they go to to get clicks and stuff. Well, it was back then it was to get purchases of their magazine. Um, and they hit upon a gold mine, which was ranking colleges by order of how good a college is. And of course, like I'm going to go back to what we originally started talking about, like one person's definition of good is not necessarily the other person's definition of good. But because they kept it secret and they had a little bit of um, they, they, they were ahead in the game. Um, they, they invented this concept sort of first and, and they pretty much owned it for the next 20 years. It meant that, um, they, they, they could just do that. They could just define good in their secretive ways. It wasn't completely secretive, not to the colleges themselves, but relatively secret to the consumers of these rankings, which were mostly parents of high school kids. Um, and these parents started paying more and more attention to these scores which created a sort of a chain of chain effect um, where college administrators suddenly started caring as well because, you know, they wanted the best students to come to their colleges. And so the college administrators started gaming this model in a big, big way. Um, so that I, this, for me, I, wa- I wanted to talk about algorithms and I wanted to make it clear to the reader of the book that algorithms are not new and that they're the sort of the feedback loops that they create can be massive and very disruptive. And I think the feedback loop created by, the U.S. News and World Report college ranking is one of the biggest and most obvious ones. And I'll just say, I think the, the sort of most important um, sort of unintended consequence of the of the of that college ranking model is that way back when they started talking about what makes a college good and what makes a college bad, the thing they omitted from their list of important factors, the thing they did not put in was actual price. And what that meant was that a given college administrator, when they were considering how to up their rank, um, they didn't have to worry about price. They could do something that made the, the tuition go up. Um, and as long as it made the other attributes look better for the U.S. News and World Report college ranking model, um, they were satisfied. And I think that this is one of the larger contributors to the, the tuition increase in colleges. So what kinds of, of proxies did they try and use to create the ranking of colleges initially? Well, they they wanted to infer quality um, through roundabout means. And so one of them was, you know, what's your average SAT score? One of them was um, how many people applied to your college versus the number of seats you had. One of them was how many people were actually let in um, who applied. And then another one was how many people actually showed up who were let in. And all of those numbers, all those metrics um, of college admissions were gameable and were highly gamed. 
Um, and they, they led to different kinds of effects. But for example, just one example, um, sometimes it really actually led to outright lying by the colleges because many of these numbers, I should say, were self-reported. Um, so in terms of like the SAT, what is the average SAT of an incoming freshman? Some of the colleges actually paid for students to take the SAT a second time, and then they would report the higher of the two scores just so that they could game. That actually, that doesn't even count as lying. There was actually lying. That really just counts as gaming. Um, but there was out and out lying where you had colleges that were just giving false numbers as well. So this is is something, like you said, that has been going on for longer than computing and Google's been around is, yeah. is the takeaway there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line in your book um, that I highlighted, and I think I underlined it like three times. Um, it says, <laughs> the privileged we'll see time and again are processed more by people, the masses by machines. Can you unpack that quote? Because I really think it's important that it doesn't get lost. Yeah, you know, and this is one of the things that I realized early on in my research that like spurred me on to actually write the book. It's that the algorithms that I talk about in my book, we, we haven't had time to speak to so too many of them, but like they, they involve things like getting a job or keeping a job or, you know, we talked about the teacher one, but they also involve things in the justice, in the field of criminal justice, like who gets policed? And the answer is poor minority neighborhoods, um, largely because they're already being policed. So the data, um, the data around their criminality is much, much stronger than the data around criminality of richer people or whiter people. Um, and there's a feedback loop there. Um, and time and time again, I would find that the people that have the most surveillance, the people that are considered losers by these algorithms, the most often are the people that are poor and that are, um, that are, are disadvantaged historically in sort of standard ways, like people. So I found somebody who has, um, a mental health problem and he was he was prevented from passing a personality test um, because of his mental health status um, to get a job um, so these these algorithms the personality test like let's just talk about that who who takes the personality test and the answer is people trying to get a minimum wage job people trying to get a job um, that poor people get or working poor get um, and the, it just, it's, it was not just a coincidence. Um, I, I, I found that, you know, that the richer you are, the more you are handled on an individual basis where people take into account, um, nuances about your history or about your status. Um, and if you are not advantaged in that way, if you, if you don't come from a rich background, um, then you're much more likely to just get a standard treatment, which can have real blind spots. And you, you're going to be seen, um, you don't have any way to appeal it. And you're going to be seen the way you're going to be seen, you have no power over it. Um, so I really started thinking of this um, and big data itself as a mechanism of funneling society into winners and losers, where there are many fewer w- winners than there are losers. It was really more of a metaphor for the entire you know, what we've seen over the last uh, 30 years, economically speaking, um, that the wealth is going to the wealth, already wealthy and the, the, the working poor and middle class um, are losing their power. And they're losing their power because, in part, of the algorithms that are, that are more increasingly controlling their existence. So these algorithms that were sometimes created with the uh, intention of being more fair are actually in some cases quite a bit less fair or at least making that fairness less easy to see and point out. Well, that's certainly true. And in the case of the personality test, I think that they're simply shutting people out of employment that, that you know, even by law, the Americans with Disability Act, 
uh, is was set up to avoid that kind of thing, to avoid that systematic filtering out of people with mental health status. Um, but in other cases, it, it's not so much that there it's exacerbating um, an existing effect as it's at the very, but it is at the very least propagating um, our historical practices. And that's, it's, it's kind of, it's aggravating, especially being a mathematician who loves math and wants mathematics to, you know, make the world a better place that these are marketed, these algorithms are often or almost always marketed as objective, fair, um, that they're bringing to this the, the given industry some kind of um, morally neutral, follow the numbers type thinking um, that everyone should be happy with. And that just, it wasn't the case. What was actually true is that these algorithms, which these machine learning algorithms in particular, are very good at picking up patterns of historical practices, but our historical practices haven't been perfect. So it was just as likely to um, propagate a sexist or racist or what have you kind of is like um, practice as it was to improve that practice. In fact, I never saw an algorithm, to be honest, really improve a situation. Wow, that's 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 a, a very interesting statement to make because that tells me how how bad the situation can be. And quite often algorithms are brought in to make a situation better. So that that's an important thing for people to think about. Um so how do we how do we prevent this? I mean, what can we do to to try and counter these these algorithms that are causing this kind of, of destruction or these kind of really bad feedback loops? Um do we use them less? Is there a way we can make them better? Um, are there regulations that we can put in place? Like any any thoughts on on what we can do to improve the situation? Well, first of all, there definitely are regulations that we could put in place if we enforce those regulations. Um, but I'm not holding my breath for that in the next four years. Let's put it that way. Um, I think as people who care about science and the scientific method, um, the b- best piece of advice I give can give to anyone who's thinking about this is that we have to double down on science. We have to triple down on science. That we, In fact, the way I look at it now is that we have this thing called data science, but there's really no science in it. What we do instead of developing evidence for a given algorithm um, of, of reliably improving a situation is that we just ask people to blindly trust these algorithms just because they're algorithms. And that's obviously not good enough. What we need to do is we need to demand and produce evidence that the algorithms are fair, that they're legal, and that they're meaningful. So in the case of the teacher value added model, it wasn't meaningful, stati- meaningful statistically, um, but nobody was allowed to demand evidence of its meaning. And that is, you know, that's a very defensive posture for, for somebody that claims to be doing data science, right? Just as in data, in, in scientific research, there is a reproducibility um, crisis going on, right? And the, the solution to that isn't to just to keep all of our source code hidden. The solution to that is to, to develop platforms where we can redo, um, we can redo experiments and make sure they work. Um, I would say this a similar kind of thing needs to happen in the world of algorithms that affect people's lives, where we have to not necessarily put the source code out for scrutiny, but at the very least, we have to develop auditing techniques to audit these algorithms for um, legality and meaning and, and fairness. And that's actually what I've been working on. You mentioned that I started a company called Orca. It's an algorithmic auditing company. And that's exactly the goal is to develop standards um, for these algorithms to be used in a fair way and to be monitored. And by the way, I actually think I'm, I know I'm sounding very pessimistic, but the truth is, I think algorithms could conceivably really help a lot of human processes. They could help them make them better. Um, I just, I'm not convinced that they're doing that right now. 
Kathy, thank you so much for being here. It's a really interesting book and, and an important topic that I, I don't think enough people think very deeply about. Thanks for having me. And if you want to learn more about Kathy O'Neill, her work, or her newest book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which of course you can find on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is David Robinson, a co-founder and principal of Upturn, a think tank in Washington, D.C. that combines technology and policy expertise. David is also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University, where he teaches a course on governing automated decisions and is a visiting fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. David, welcome to Science for the People. Good to be here. So last summer, your team at Upturn released a report titled Stuck in a Pattern, Early Evidence on Predictive Policing and Civil Rights. So before we get into the nitty gritty of that, can you maybe talk about what is predictive policing? Sure. I think that's a great place to start uh, because predictive policing is really a marketing term from the public safety industry. And what they tend to be referring to is uh, using computers to forecast where crime may happen or who may be involved. And, you know, for us, the, the problem is those forecasts are only going to be as good as the data that they're based on. So when did we start using this kind of of model of trying to predict where crime is going to happen? Because it does sound a little bit minority reportish. Yeah, so it's it, it's an interesting story, and it really depends on sort of how you want to look at the history. One perspective would be there's a rapid adoption of uh, modern computer methods in policing. So police are increasingly using sort of uh, data mining and large-scale analytics to uh, predict where to go. On the other hand, uh, the idea of mapping where crimes happened as a way of getting a sense of what police sometimes call the hotspots of crime um, is as old as policing itself. So, you know, you, you, you've had as, as long as you've had professionalized police forces, basically, you've had people putting pushpins on maps. Um, and what we're seeing now is really a sort of intensified and automated evolution of that longstanding practice. So what is the difference between the old pushpin method where, you know, you just have a big map on your wall, you'd stick in some pins to kind of try and identify where some of those hotspots are to what we're doing now with some of the predictive policing and model-based work? Well, I think there's a there's a 
a different when you when you put a computer into the middle of the of the process, especially when the users are uh, are not computer oriented. They're not. They t- don't tend to be uh, science nerds like your audience. They tend to be people who are focused on you know trying to enforce uh, enforce the law. And so there's a real temptation to sort of. Uh, make very generous assumptions about how much the computer knows or how likely the computer is to be correct. I mean, when a policeman had put the pins on the wall himself, typically typically a, a man in a historically in a police department, uh, there would be, uh, you know, this kind of sense that they knew what the information meant, uh, and they knew where it came from, and they knew, you know, what its limits were. Uh, now we have systems instead, like uh, one, one system called beware that uh, when you when you call the the police it assigns a, a threat score so-called to you the person not who's not not the suspect but the person who sought help from the police to say well what's how much of a threat do you represent to the officer and it's like a red yellow green uh, uh, rating and there's no validation as far as we know of that being based on on anything robust and if you think about so the, the way they sell that to police departments Departments who are not sophisticated shoppers for IT is they'll say, you know, this is about helping keep your officers safe, right? But if you think about what it would take to build a statistical model of who poses a risk to an officer, it's a much, much smaller set of examples that you have that you're, that you're trying to predict. It's a much smaller uh, landing target for you for, for prediction than just trying to predict crime. You're trying to predict a very specific, in that instance, kind of crime. So assaults on an officer uh, you know, happen only only in a very small fraction of cases. And by the way, you don't actually know when officers are assaulted. You know when assaults on officers are reported, right? So the the, the data is often, you know, that might mean someone uh, got into an argument or something. Uh, so it's often very difficult to uh, get get a responsible prediction. And uh, people who are the vendors selling this technology often will feel free to promise the moon. And so even though we have been doing some prediction for a long time in the law enforcement world, there's a big gap now between what's feasible and what people think they're able to do. So what kind of data is actually being fed into these systems? Because I'm assuming what is purchased is the the modeling technology and then whatever police department purchases the software uh, is going to have to, I guess, feed some of their own data into it because it is specific to their own to their own location and to, I guess, their own crime stats. So what kind of data are they using in in the software? So it's a great question. And typically, the data is coming from the police department itself, which means uh, that people will talk about it by saying, oh, we're using crime data. But it's important to bear in mind that what they really mean in most instances is they're talking about data that is records of law enforcement activity. So it might be records of arrests or citations or uh, even of crime uh, calls for service. So like when someone calls 911 
And you know, the intuition is that this is uh, data that tells us where the where the crimes are, but often it tends to be data that that tells us where the police are instead. So, for example, uh, even if we look at nine one one calls, a, a huge fraction of those calls, it turns out, are made by officers in the field who want to get it documented that they've seen a certain crime, and that's just the most efficient way for them to call it in. And the reason that that's significant is because all this data, whether it's arrests or stops or uh, even these crime reports, uh, it's a measurement problem where you, you get a lot more measurement wherever you send the police. And so imagine if, you know, in one neighborhood, police are frequently stopping people and they spend a lot of their time in that neighborhood. They're looking for reasons uh, to make arrests and to write up whatever infractions that they find, whether it's open containers or a lane change without a turn signal or something like that. Meanwhile, across town, uh, the same behavior might not uh, get treated in the same way. Um, and we know this is the case, for example, with, with drug possession. So um, there's public health data in the U.S. that tells us that uh, drug use rates uh, are roughly the same across different geographies and different racial groups. Um, well, if, if people are using drugs at a similar rate, that presumably means they're also possessing them at a similar rate. But if you look at who gets arrested for possessing drugs, it's a hugely concentrated map in typically black and brown communities that are ha- have highly concentrated poverty. And that's because that's where the police uh, are concentrating their enforcement efforts, uh, and and the challenge is that in the sort of in the in the automated prediction world that we're entering with with these new predictive policing systems, I mean, you know, it gets beyond the, that traditional pushpin, and it gets into the computer telling police where uh, where crime is going to happen or where police should focus their attention. Except the, what the computer is really doing is predicting past police practice, because that's what the, that's what the data is where the computer's automatically looking for patterns. His computer's going to say, "Oh, all the all the much of the crime is is concentrated over here in this one area and sometimes that may turn out to be true and at other times that might just be a reflection of uh, how the data has been gathered. So there's really not a way for the system, uh, the predictive policing system, really anything that they have to provide predictions outside the current norm of enforcement stats, because that's really the stats it's drawing from. It's not getting information outside of those reports already. So I guess it's going, the model, what comes out the other side of the model is going to look very familiar. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's what happens when you look look for patterns in in existing data is you you know you're going to repeat those patterns and i think if you really were to try and ra- wrap up well what is the civil rights agenda here it's it's about saying that some patterns need to change and when people defer to the computer uh often with sort of a ra- rather uncritical uh, approach uh, that can really uh, impede uh, the, the drive for change. And I also think, you know, another another facet of this problem is right now we use police data to measure crime. But if you think about it, there are other things that we could do to measure crime that might work better or differently. For example, we could be measuring gunshot wound uh, admissions uh, into emergency rooms. Uh, we could be asking people whether they've been a victim of a crime. The United States has a national crime victimization survey uh, that it runs on a, a nationwide basis. 
uh, and does once every few years. But if you really wanted granular data, you know, about what's going on in a particular neighborhood, you, you would want to be doing a lot more of that kind of, of survey activity to find out from people when are they encountering crimes in their in, in their communities and, and when are they not. But this isn't something that, you know, we currently do much in the United States. So I know that in a lot of these situations, geography, which is what a lot of predictive policing models uh, look at and kind of spit out, it tends to be a proxy for race and class, especially um, in the United States. Um, but one of the other issues is that some of these systems will also create like a, a high risk list of names of people in the community that are ostensibly potentially high risk uh, at becoming an offender or high risk at committing a crime is that accurate yeah it's uh it's it's sort of the bleeding edge if you if you'll forgive that expression of uh, of where this this sort of prediction is is heading and uh for example in chicago they've created what they call the heat list or the strategic subjects list which is a list of people predicted likely to become parties to violence and they actually don't distinguish and i think this is interesting they can predict who's likely to be a party to violence, but they can't predict which side of the gun you're on, or they don't. They predict that you are likely to either pull the trigger or get shot. And because the truth is, in the context of what is largely gang violence, it's the same population who's at risk both of committing and of being the victim of these of these gang shootings. When the system was introduced, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, talked about how they were going to use this to give people job training and mentoring and you know things to sort of help people find a path away from you know, a life of crime. But when when the Rand Corporation went in to actually measure how Chicago police were using this list, what they found was that being on the list uh, increased your chance of, of arrest or other contact with the police, but actually didn't didn't increase the likelihood of a of a of a crime being prevented. So uh, the ones on the list got punished more, but didn't commit fewer crimes. <laughs> I feel like those kinds of lists, be especially because we can't determine whether or not someone's going to be a perpetrator or a victim, because those. That, that risk is really mixed. Isn't there uh, an argument here to provide some kind of social assistance to people before crimes are committed in order to try and, and prevent some of that? Because inevitably, police can kind of harass you and let you know that they're watching you, which would make me really paranoid. Uh, or, I mean, they can arrest you after something's done. There's not much they can really do in between. So are people talking about using this in a, in a truly preventative way? Or is this still really just about law enforcement kind of going in and saying, we've got our eye on you? Well, so this is this is exactly where the rub is, is that it gets talked about as if we were doing that first thing of trying to get in there and prevent crime from happening, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a laudable goal. And I think there is potential uh, to be uh, doing that. But the truth is that when you hand this to the police uh, departments that we have today, the institutions that exist today in big cities, um, that's not what they do. They don't do job training. They don't do social interviews. 
interventions. What they do is law enforcement. And when you give them this list and tell them to focus on people, what what the Rand Corporation found in its in its rigorous study of the Chicago system was that was that they're just using it for more more of the same sorts of of law enforcement tactics that are you know that are their bread and butter. And I you know much as I might prefer uh, them to uh, act in a different way, I think I think realistically, you know, if we want different treatment of this information, if we want it used in different ways, then we need different institutional actors to have access to the information. So social services, rather than perhaps the police, or at least in addition to the police, ought to be gaining access to these kinds of, uh, of predictive technologies. Do the communities where police departments who are using predictive policing tools, do they know that the police have these tools and are using them? Or is that often, is there often not even an awareness at any level in the community that these kinds of tools exist? Yeah, they, they often don't know at all. And I think it's important to realize that uh, there's there's sort of a skills gap. So, you know, even as the police lack expertise in how these systems work, the same is true of city councils and certainly of uh, of people out in the in the community in general. It's 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 not a skill set that uh, that people have. And so, you know, I think what we've seen in a in a handful of uh, of places where there's really been been success, and I would point to Fresno, California, and I would point to Bellingham, Washington. Uh, as examples, uh, is we've seen people have a public debate and really learn together about how these systems work and whether or not uh, they make sense uh, for communities. And I, th- I think the answer is that they often uh, don't confer uh, the significant benefit that they're that they're thought to uh, that they're thought to confer. And you know, one of the problems with oh, we're, we'll bring in a computer and w- and we'll solve this complex social problem. Uh, you know, not only do you not solve the problem. Uh, but on top of that, uh, you, you end up in this situation where uh, you, you seem like you're doing something or you think you're doing something uh, and the underlying problem remains unresolved. How are we actually trying to measure the effectiveness of predictive policing tools when we do try to measure them? Are there, what, what, what is effective even? How do we know if it's working? What is the, the work measure here? Well, it's it's hard to be sure, and it is a it's a difficult measurement problem. But one thing you can do is make predictions uh, in one part of an area, or like in one precinct, and then use traditional methods in a neighboring precinct that has neighboring or similar circumstances, and compare them and see you know what effect the difference in tactics uh, has made. Uh, that's what the Rand Corporation did in its evaluations of both in Chicago and in Shreveport, Louisiana, which are the, the only two rigorous uh, controlled studies that we have of the impact of predictive policing. Um, and actually, you know, from a scientific point of view, it would be wonderful if controlled trials of, of policing tactics and social interventions were uh, were more common. It's very rare, actually, for uh, police to do, you know, what uh, in the biomedical field is done all the time, where you where you actually uh, have have a controlled trial that allows you to isolate the impact of the intervention that you're that you're trying to measure. I mean, it's startling how little we know about what the impact is of policing. Uh, on communities, you know, how often should the police patrol the same the same spot, for example, or, um, you know, 
what's the impact of of a policy that uh, you know like uh, like broken windows? We have strong evidence that when you uh, excessively uh, arrest people for minor uh, infractions, it sends uh, you know too many people into the criminal justice system and and, and disrupts uh, their lives. I mean, but that took a long time uh, to really have the compelling evidence develop. We had years of uh, of hundreds of thousands of people being subject to that policy before its harms uh, became apparent. I think if we'd been measuring more carefully in the first place, then uh, we would be in a position to detect that problem sooner. This is one of the issues that comes out in your report and I think comes out for anybody who looks more in depth at the way modern technology is intersecting with police work is it's one of these issues of the only things we have to measure sometimes are the things that happen. So the enforcement opportunities that come up and the reports that are written and the arrests that are made and everything else kind of vanishes and we sort of look at those numbers and assume that just because there's no data in that spot, that there was no crime committed. And of course, that if you think about it for 10 seconds, doesn't make any sense. But it's really easy to fall into that gap of just where the police are is where the crime is. And that that doesn't always stand up. Uh, There definitely seems to be a long term effect that a high police presence has in these community on the people. I mean, looking into things like stop and frisk rules will definitely teach you that very quickly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. If you want to learn more about David Robinson, Upturn, or Predictive Policing, we have some links to get you started on our website, which you'll find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>